miracles and parables of Christ. In case you're wondering, um, it's not random. We're not just picking random parables and miracles. What we're doing is we're hoping to show you what does it look like to follow the king? What does it look like to to live in his kingdom? And who is the king? And what does it mean to follow the king? And so we're going to be continuing to see that today. And specifically the aspect of what does it look like to follow this king? So turn your Bibles to Matthew 15. Be reading a very short miracle, but a, a miracle that is packed with meaning. So let's read God's word together. This is God's holy inspired word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son to reveal yourself and to reveal what it looks like to come to you, how we might come to you through your son. God, I, hope that, I pray that you would help us all be attentive to your words, that you would speak to each of our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that you would just blow away the fog of this week and the worries and the cares and the things that might distract us. And God, I pray that you would enable us to, to clearly hear from you. And Father, I pray that our faith in you would be built as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. God, I ask you for your help personally. In your name, amen. Well, before we begin to look at this passage specifically, I want to propose just a couple questions to you. I want to ask you, who does Jesus come to? Who does Jesus come to? Think about that for a moment. Who does Jesus come to? Or it might be rather, what kind of person does Jesus come to? Does Jesus come only to the pure? Does Jesus come to the people who have cleaned themselves up? Does Jesus come to the people who look good on the outside first and become acceptable first? Is that the kind of person that Jesus comes to? Is that why Jesus comes to people? Is that what Jesus does? Does he come to people who are only clean on the outside? Do we clean ourselves up first and then Jesus says, okay, now you're ready to, to receive from me? 
How about, how about do we have to deal with our problems before we can come to God through Christ? You think, you see, these, these are the very questions that Matthew is confronting. What does it take to follow Jesus? What kind of person can come to Jesus? What are the requirements for coming to Jesus? How do we receive the grace that Jesus brings? Now, where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from the context of this miracle. You see, this miracle occurs immediately after the Pharisees had come to confront Jesus in Matthew 15. If you look down your Bibles, the beginning of Matthew 15, verse 1, the Pharisees have come up to Jesus, and they're asking Jesus, they're saying, hey, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Why did they do that? Why did they defy the, the laws of the elders? Why did they not do what our rituals prescribe for remaining clean? You know, for us today, it's a little bit hard to relate to because when we see, you know, why do your disciples not eat, not, why do they eat with unwashed hands? You might think, well, of course, why, why wouldn't they wash their hands first, right? I mean, after all, hands get dirty. When my kids and I go to Walmart and we grab the door or hold on to the handle, all I'm thinking about is, oh, Lord, please don't let them touch their face or put their hands in their mouth because I'm aware of the grossness of that, the germs. And, but this isn't a matter of hygiene here. You know, this isn't um, the first thing that I do. Believe it or not, when I'm around a lot of people, I, I go wash my hands because I'm like, I, mean, I don't know where everybody's hands have been. You know? <laughs> um, no, I, I think you guys' hands are, are very clean. I, I trust you. But, but you know, the, the Pharisees weren't paranoid about washing their hands because they were worried about germs or viruses or bacteria or hygiene. They were concerned about washing their hands because they thought that by external rituals they could become clean. By external rituals they could become acceptable to God. By external rituals they could receive God's grace. They thought that they would be blessed by God by conforming and keeping rituals. That's why it's important to see the context here. And so the context of this miracle is important. Look at your Bibles in verse 11. Matthew 15 11, Jesus corrects the Pharisees and he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. He says, this defiles a person. They were a little confused by that. And Jesus goes on to explain that it's not that what you eat and what you put in your mouth or even germs or things like that. It's, it's you're defiled by your core desires of who you are. The things at your heart, the things that come out of your heart and are expressed through your mouth, that defiles you. And what that means is that you're defiled on the inside to begin with. You have a heart problem. You need to be made clean. You're not made clean by externals. Is kind of the, the message that Jesus is getting across. He says that it's not by keeping religious rituals in practice that makes us clean. But, but the thing is, if a person's unclean from within, if a person, if you and I are unclean from our hearts, then how in the world can we be healed of our uncleanness? How can we be made clean if our hearts are what makes us dirty? Our core motives of who we are, the very thing that motivates everything that we're about, if that is what defiles us, then how in the world will we, can we be healed from that? How in the world can we be made clean? That's the, that is what Matthew intends for the person who's reading through his book. He intends for them to grapple with that. How in the world will we ever be healed if we have a rot inside of us? And so we're, we're left to wonder, does God only deliver those who are already clean? This miracle is actually meant to be an answer to that question. 
This miracle actually answers that question. It's immediately after that for a reason. Both in Matthew and Mark, the only two places where it occurs. And what we see in this short miracle account really is that the grounds for Christ's cleansing, for his favor, for his grace and his mercy, the grounds for his healing power, it it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in this miracle. And so Jesus shows us that what kind of faith? He shows us the kind of faith that's the grounds for his grace. And so the very first thing that we see, the woman in this miracle, what she illustrates for us, the first illustration, really, if you were ever in Sunday school and they had object lessons as part of the class, you know, they bring out the water and the picture and they'd have dye and the like. This is really Jesus' object lesson to his disciples immediately following his teaching to the Pharisees. Jesus goes from his teaching with the Pharisees and he immediately takes them away to encounter this woman in a Gentile region. And we see this woman in this miracle, she illustrates that, that the kind of faith that is grounds for God's grace is a Christ-centered faith. Well, the very first thing we encounter is really a Christ-centered faith. You see, Jesus had just left the Pharisees in Galilee, and he is going into the district of Tyre and Sidon. It's a predominantly Gentile region, and and as a clue, Jews and Gentiles, they don't get along. They don't hang out with each other. There were all kinds of laws about how Jews were not supposed to be with Gentiles or go into their houses or be around them if they could help it. According to Josephus, he was a first century Jewish historian, he wrote, he says, the Phoenicians and Tyrians are notoriously our bitterest enemies. So what in the world is Jesus doing? Why is Jesus going directly from Galilee into the region of Tyre and Sidon, their bitterest enemies, the people that they hate? Was he lost? You know, maybe, maybe Jesus thought, oh, you know what, I'll go to where I have a lot of enemies. You know, maybe, maybe he was wanting to avoid the Jews who were trying to take him by force and make him king, that's, that's probably part of it. The other part of it is that Herod was looking for him, so he was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, so I don't have to confront with Herod right now. But, but from what Jesus does in this miracle, it's clear he's up to far more. He is up to far more. He, he knew that the Canaanites were historically enemies of God's people. Um, God himself commanded Joshua to go and wipe out all the Canaanites. And yet we see here Jesus going to the land of the Canaanites. You know, in the Gospels you can see that Jesus never does anything accidentally. There's, there's always a deliberate reason for what Jesus does. And yet he goes and, and here's what he does. He encounters this Canaanite He would have been hated enough, but not only was this a Canaanite, this was a woman. And for a rabbi to speak to a woman, much less a a Canaanite woman, would have been the ultimate taboo. And so this woman appears to be beyond the scope of God's mercy, and it's important for us to see. She appears to be someone who's beyond the scope of God's mercy. She is in the hated land of of Tyre and Sidon. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. Surely she does not deserve God's cleansing power. But here comes this Canaanite woman, and she is crying out. 
Now for us today, that word crying out, we can kind of lose the connotations for that. Maybe, maybe when you hear the word crying out, you think, okay, she's, she's sobbing, she's in a corner, and she's crying quietly, and she's just sad, and she's overcome. But she is crying out in the sense of shouting, like a town crier would cry out. And she's pleading with Jesus. And notice what she says. It's pretty surprising. You can always expect to be surprised when you read a miracle or a parable of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with them, we sometimes don't read them with those eyes. But if you're reading with the eyes of the first century, what she says is surprising. She cries out. She says, have mercy on me. And then the basis for her appeal. This is where we see Christ-centered faith. The basis for her appeal is she says, have mercy on me. What does she call him? She says, oh, Lord. And then the surprise is she says, son of David. Have mercy on me, oh, Lord, son of David. She is looking to him, the Jewish Messiah, as her Lord. This Gentile woman, her faith is centered on Jesus as her Lord, as the son of David. The Messiah, deliverer, and yet she is appropriating, she is placing her faith in the Jewish Messiah as her Lord and coming to him in faith, asking for mercy. It reveals really that she knows who Jesus is and she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But not only that, she is claiming Jesus as, the, as her own Messiah, as her own Lord. She's appealing to him as if he is her Messiah. And she tells Jesus, she says, I, I, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She's shouting that out. There's New American Standard. She says she's cruelly possessed by a demon. A demon's tormenting her daughter, and this woman knows she desperately needs deliverance, but instead of turning to other objects of faith, and by the way, that region housed one of the largest temples to a supposed god of healing, and she doesn't go there. Instead, the object of her faith, the, the focus of her faith is the Lord, Son of David. Her faith is centered on who Jesus is, and she's looking to him to deliver her. In her desperation, she's actively looking for Jesus, and she is crying out. That's the kind of faith that's a fertile ground for God's favor. A faith that looks to Jesus, that doesn't look to other sources, doesn't go other places. A faith that looks to Jesus as Lord, looks to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of David, the one who has come as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And if we're thoughtful readers, if we really reflect on this interaction, I think it's meant to provoke us. It's meant to provoke us and make us ask, where is our faith? Do we have this kind of faith? Do we have the kind of faith that an outsider, one who is far off, a Gentile woman who had no right to Jesus had, that she claims Jesus as her Messiah? Do we have the kind of faith that's centered on Jesus, that calls him Lord, that says, Son of David, have mercy? You know, for desperate, who will we turn to? You know, when circumstances get difficult or challenging or when illness hits, where are we driven? Do, are we driven to seek Jesus or we seek other things? Do we go to him in our desperation? Do we seek him out? Do we cry out to him because we must have them? That's this picture here of this woman. She is desperately focused on Jesus, crying out to him because she must have Jesus. 
Is that the kind of faith that we have? What we see is a, is a Christ-centered faith that the grounds for his grace. And it's meant to help us see that our faith is not to be in our performance or our cleanness. She was unclean. But she had a faith that had nothing to do with her cleanliness or lack of cleanliness. She had a faith that was centered in Jesus. And the second way this miracle illustrates the grounds for God's grace is through the woman's persistent faith. This woman wouldn't quit. She was persistent. The kind of faith that is the grounds for God's grace is a persistent faith. You know, Jesus is full of surprises. And all throughout the book of Matthew, up until now that is, the first 15 chapters of Matthew, whenever Jesus encounters someone who needs healing, what does Jesus do? He heals them. Whenever somebody comes to Jesus and they seek Jesus, he immediately heals them. It says he healed all who came to him earlier in Matthew, and, and everyone who came to him, he did not turn away. Even when he was exhausted, he was tired. When he had gone away into the wilderness to get some rest, and the people came to him, and he keeps healing them. And he is this compassionate and gracious Jesus. He is healing all kinds of people. He doesn't just relegate his healing to the Jews. He heals the centurion, well, the centurion's servant, when the centurion comes to him, this Roman centurion, the ultimate enemy of the state, comes to him and pleads with him. And Jesus says, because of your great faith, go, your servant is healed. So Jesus heals not only Gentiles, but hated Gentiles and people far off. And then later we see that Jesus crosses across the Sea of Galilee in the book of Matthew. And he goes to the area of the Gadarenes. And he heals two Gentile demoniacs, or people so possessed with demons. And one guy's got so many demons that he's called Legion. And Jesus is not afraid to heal. He's not reticent or hesitant to heal Gentiles. So what is going on? This is surprising. This is the first time in Matthew that we ever see when somebody comes to Jesus and asks to be healed, he doesn't answer. That's uncomfortable for us. Hang on, wait a minute. Why is Jesus, I thought that we're encouraged to come to Jesus, to bring him our burdens because he cares for us. I thought that we were encouraged to, to bring our requests to him and that he won't give us a stone if we ask for bread. He won't give us a stone. So what's going on here? Why in the world is Jesus silent? Isn't she desperate just like everybody else? Just like the Roman centurion, just like the Gadarene demoniacs? Why in the world does Jesus not answer her? He doesn't answer her. And that's a little surprising. He doesn't even acknowledge her presence, really. He kind of just goes on. And some commentators and some people in the past, I think, have, have not read this parable in the context, nor have they read the end of the parable, I mean, the miracle, apparently. They've, they've assumed that, well, Jesus is prejudiced here. He's, maybe he's got an issue with women. But don't forget the woman at the well. Don't forget the, the prostitutes that he healed and ate with. That's not it. They assume that, that Jesus is just being rude. He's just, he's kind of off his game. He's being unkind. Well, the text there, there's something important to note. It's silent on the internal thoughts and actions or even facial expressions of Jesus. But he doesn't answer her, but it seems that he's waiting to see what her response will be when he doesn't answer. He's waiting to see, too, what his disciples' response will be. And we can see that in the miracle. 
You know, how would his disciples answer her? He'd already sent them out to go and to heal people, to deliver people from demons. How would they treat this woman who is a Gentile? After they come back from preaching the good news, would they have mercy and compassion on this woman? How are they evaluating people who deserve to be cleaned and healed by God? We don't have to wait long to see. Look just for a moment, though, back up to verse 22. It says, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She's shouting. She's yelling with a loud voice like this town crier, like in the days of old when you would announce royalty and say, hear ye, hear ye. Well, she is crying in a different way and saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And she won't shut up. She won't be quiet. This is inappropriate. It's, he's a rabbi, and she's yelling at him, and he ignores her, but she continues on. She's announcing her need for mercy loudly, and she doesn't stop. Think about that for a moment. She wasn't embarrassed. She didn't care who heard about her need. Imagine if you had a need and, and Jesus is walking through downtown Greenville and Falls Park when it's full of, of people that fall for Greenville or something like that and Jesus is walking by and you keep yelling but he doesn't answer and so you're a little embarrassed. You think, well, maybe I'm just not worthy and so you should be quiet. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't care about what people think. She is loudly crying and that word is continuously. It's a continuous crying. She doesn't just cry once. She doesn't stop crying. In fact, she was so persistent that she really bothered the disciples. She's so persistent in crying out for mercy, in fact, that his disciples, it says, came to Jesus, and they begged him, Jesus, would you please make her stop? Oh, my gosh. She won't shut up. She's so annoying. Could you please just send her away? We can't even think. She's yelling so loudly. She's right behind us, and she's crying out after us. Jesus, Son of David, have, Lord, have mercy on me. Could you make her stop? She was bothering them. She wouldn't quit. You know, I have to confess, I, I can be tempted to respond with that kind of exasperation sometimes too, when maybe one of my children keeps yelling out from the other room in the middle of doing something or working, and all I hear is them just yelling. Instead of coming to me, they're yelling, Dad, 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 Dad. I'm like, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. Dad, Dad, Dad. And they won't stop. She's persistent like that. You know, nobody, nobody likes somebody persistently yelling or shouting at us. But she is persistent and continuing despite even the disciples' reaction. And I bet, knowing Peter and those guys, what we see of him, I bet they already turned around and were like, would you stop it? And she won't stop. But she demonstrates something for us. She shows that the grounds for God's grace, they come through a persistent faith. A faith that clings to him no matter what. And just thinking as I was reading this story, I was thinking, you know, how, how is my faith? Do I have that kind of persistent faith? Not just to come to him initially to, as, as a believer, but do I have that kind of persistent faith now as a believer? What does my life look like? Do I consistently go and say, Jesus, have mercy, until I hear an answer? And if the answer is no, okay, but 
Do I persist in following Jesus? Do I persist despite embarrassment? Do I persist despite what people think of me when they tell me to be silent? Do I have that kind of faith? Because it's this persistent faith that we see at the end of the, the miracle. It, it's the conduit for God's blessing. But not only that, it illustrates another kind of faith that's the grounds for God's grace. And, it's, it's a, and it reveals a faith that is tested. Now this part leaves us uncomfortable. I mean, we, can, we can be okay with a faith that's centered on Jesus. We all get that. And we're like, yes, we agree. We need to have faith that's centered on Jesus. Oh no, that sounds good. And we're going to have faith that's persistent. And yes, we need to be persistent. And, and yes, that's good to be persistent and have a persistent faith. But what we don't want is a faith that's tested. Nobody here wants a faith that's tested. And if you do, you probably have a few screws loose. Nobody says, oh yeah, please, Jesus, test me. You know, I was thinking about um, the times when I've not been able to go to my my regular physician and I've had to and I'm out of state or, um, you know, it's at a time when they're closed on the weekend or something like that and I go to the, the urgent care and, and I subject myself to that whole process and system. And if I have a problem, then I have to end up telling them all about all of my other problems and background and details and they end up probing and asking all these questions because they're trying to really test me. And so I feel like I'm, feel like I'm being evaluated like I'm a liar or something. Like, no, I, I, really, I really am sick and I, I promise I'm not making it up. You know, I, I always feel like I've got to somehow prove myself because they ask so many questions. And once I went to... Um, a, a doctor, and, and I had a, a problem with my arm. I had torn my, my labrum. And what was uncomfortable was that he kept putting his fingers in places that hurt. He would probe. He would test to see what was wrong. And in doing that, it was, does it hurt here? No. Does it hurt here? Yes. Does it hurt here? Yeah, a lot. Quit it. But the reason why doctors probe, why they test, why they try to figure things is now is not because they're sadistic, at least 99.99% of them, right? They take a Hippocratic oath of to only do good, to heal. That's their desire. So when they're probing, when they're testing, when doctors are causing pain and they're probing us to see where it hurts, it's so that it might be the grounds for bringing healing. And that's what we see here. We see the great physician here. He is probing this woman. And it is painful. It's painful to read. It's painful to see. It's painful to read. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. He didn't send the woman away. But his next comment, look down in verse 24. Look what he says to her. He's testing her. He's probing her. He's, how are you going to react when I do this? What are you going to do when I do this? Let me test your faith. See how genuine your faith really is. And so he answers her and he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he doing? He's probing her faith. He's testing her faith. Why in the world does Jesus say that? Is he just being racist? Is he being prejudiced here? I mean, it is true that he was sent first to the house of Israel and through the house of Israel all the nations would be blessed. So Jesus' mission was to come to Israel and through Israel all the nations would be blessed. He doesn't say that portion though because he is testing the faith of this woman. And he seems he's also testing the faith of his disciples too. Because earlier, if they had been paying attention when in Matthew 8, Jesus encounters the centurion I mentioned earlier, this centurion comes to Jesus 
And it's because of the centurion's faith that Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. Go, your servant is healed. I don't even have to come. He's, because Jesus had seen the faith centurion that says, Jesus, you don't have to come here. I don't need that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of authority, and I know that you have authority because you have authority. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. Go, your servant's healed. If his disciples were paying attention, they would have realized that this wasn't about Jew-Gentile. And that Jesus couldn't have only come to heal the Jews, so what did, what did he mean? But they obviously weren't getting it because they were asking Jesus to send her away. They'd forgotten that Jesus had already shown he wasn't reluctant to heal Gentiles, that he cast demons out of Gentiles. But he's, he's probing, and it hurts. It's painful. I don't, I don't like reading this miracle. It is painful to read. Does she really believe in him? Does she really appeal to him as her Messiah? We don't like this kind of probing that tests our faith. But Jesus here, he's not probing for sport. He's not probing because he's unkind. He's probing and testing because he's the great physician and, and he's, he's wanting to get to the heart of the matter to bring true healing. But if Jesus is the kind of Messiah who doesn't test who doesn't probe. Let me say to you, this, 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 this miracle shows us that he's not, you, you've made him up. If you have a Jesus that doesn't test, that doesn't probe, that doesn't push back, that doesn't ask you, is your faith really in me? That doesn't push you, that doesn't probe, then your faith's in a false God. But consider what James, the brother of Jesus said. In James 1, 2 through 4, James is telling us, he says, but count it all joy. Not that you're having trials. He says, but count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here's what he says in verse 3. For you know that the what? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The point of God testing us, of not tempting us, but testing us, of, of ensuring that our faith is genuine, and helping us know that our faith is genuine, that proving and showing to all that our faith is genuine is so that we might be steadfast. And with steadfastness has its full effect, we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And don't you want the outcome of that? What we don't want is the probing. What we don't want is the testing. Well, consider what Peter, the chief disciple, the best, one of the best friends of Jesus said in, in his letter in 1 Peter 1, 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. We like the genuineness of your faith part, but we don't like so that the tested genuineness of your faith he says so that the tested genuineness of your faith the probed genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ though you've not seen him you love him Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He tests this woman. He pushes on her. He confronts her. 
really. So the basis of her faith is in him and, and not herself. And we are tested so that our faith is confirmed as genuine, but we don't like it. It's not always pleasant. It is difficult. Ultimately, though, it's for our joy. It was for this woman's joy. Jesus wasn't testing this woman because he was being mean. He was testing this woman for her sake, for the disciples' sake, for our sake, so that the genuineness of her faith was revealed like a gemstone that's being polished. And he's, he's, he's polishing her by testing her and saying, look, and he's about to reveal her faith. And then the last thing this miracle demonstrates to us is that this kind of faith, it's a ground for God's grace, it's a humble faith. It's a humble faith, right? It's a very humble faith. This woman really is one of the best models of humble faith in the Gospels, period. Think about that. Jesus ignored her. He's the first one that Jesus ignored or seemed to ignore. And I'd say seemed to. He's also the first one that Jesus says, I came to the lost sheep of Israel. And then, look how else he answers her. He calls her a dog. She had a humble faith. She, wasn't, she, was, she was not deterred by Jesus ignoring her. She wasn't hindered by the disciples' request to send her away. She, she would have been embarrassed and ashamed, but she was humble in her faith. She didn't care what they thought. She needed to have God's mercy for herself. And so we see what she does. She comes and it says kneels down before her. The actual word is prostrates herself before him. And whenever you see that, that prostration, it's always a sign of worship. She comes. What's her response to Jesus saying, I only came to the lost sheep of Israel, of ignoring her, the disciples saying, send her away, and she hears all of this. What's her response? She comes and she humbly bows before him. She humbly prostrates herself before him in worship, and what does she do? She doesn't make excuses. She doesn't say anything else. She just still continues to look to him humbly as the Lord. She just says, Lord, save me. Not because of any merit on my own. Lord, save me. I need you. But he still seems to be testing this woman. And look in verse 26. Look what he says, how humiliating this would have been. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, or to the little dogs is the the word there. That's... That's an offensive sounding probing, right? That's painful. And when we hear this, it's a very offensive comment. You know, I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s, and unfortunately, we used to call people dogs, and it wasn't good. It was very derogatory. It was was one of the most insulting things you could say to a girl. And, And it's still very unkind to call a person a dog. It wasn't more kind back then, and commentators have said, well, he calls her a little dog. Oh, that makes it better? sure okay but we don't have to excuse Jesus away here what he is doing is he is testing and probing her faith not to be mean but to say will you still come to me and will you come to me humbly and so what does she do 
By Mark's account, it shows that Jesus did intend for her to eat as well. Because he says in Mark, in the parallel, he says, let the little children first have all that they want. And she must have heard that word and found hope and said, hang on, he said first. And hang on, if I'm a dog, even dogs get to eat. And so his insult is apparently geared to reveal and stretch the woman's faith. And she turns his apparent insult around. She is humble. What does she do? Does she say, I'm not a dog. I have worth on my own. And I deserve you to heal me. And how dare you? And walk away angry. She doesn't do that. Instead, look in verse 27. She actually agrees with him. You know, often when Jesus is revealed, um, people, when Jesus is revealed to be Messiah, like Peter, he says, you know, the Messiah. And then later, Peter says, but no, Lord. This woman says, but Yes. Yes, I'm a dog. Look at verse 27. She says, yes, Lord. Yes, I'm a dog. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This woman is persistent. She doesn't stop. And she humbles himself. Instead of being thrown off by this perceived insult. She uses Jesus' words to prove the validity of her own request, and she basically is saying, yes, Lord, I don't deserve it. You're right. I'm a Gentile dog. I have no deserving, no worth on my own. I'm unclean. Right? Do you see what Matthew's been doing here? Yes, Lord, you're right. The dogs don't deserve the children's bread. I know I don't deserve the children's bread. But she says, even the dogs are allowed to eat the table scraps from their master's table. So yes, I'm a dog. But here's how she humbles herself. She says, but by the way, you are the master of this lowly dog. And I'm just asking to eat the crumbs that fall down to all those who take shelter at your table. Even the dogs at the master's table get to eat and be fed with the crumbs. She's basically saying, as your dog, I'm a dog, but I'm your dog. And as your dog, I want to be fed by your crumbs. What a humble acknowledgement. What a humble statement of faith. What's she doing here? She's she's owning her own lack of deserving. But she still calls Jesus her master. She still appeals to him to eat his crumbs, his leftovers. She's still acknowledging that Jesus is her Messiah. She is humbling herself and saying that you are my master. And I'm, I'm placing myself, sure, I'm a dog. But this dog is coming to beg at your feet. And I'm placing myself at your feet, the only place where I can be fed. And she has a humble faith, desiring to be fed by Jesus at his feet. It's no surprise then that Jesus sees this faith that he had already seen as the Son of God in her heart. He sees it proven and tested as genuine in actuality. And he acknowledges her. It's a wonderful acknowledgement. It's one of the highest praises Jesus gives to anyone. And so finally, what we see, what we learn from this miracle, especially in the context of Matthew, and talking about what, what makes somebody clean, and this Gentile unclean dog comes wanting to be healed, she does receive God's favor and God's grace. And so really the main idea here seems to be that that Jesus has mercy or he has grace on the seemingly undeserving who come to him humbly in faith. 
Jesus has mercy on the seemingly undeserving or on the completely undeserving, maybe I should say completely undeserving, who come to him humbly in faith. And that's good news for you and I, who are Gentiles, by and large, here. Jesus has mercy on the undeserving who come to him humbly in faith. That's what we can learn from this miracle, and that is good news. That's that's the reason for hope. Why? Because we can hear the same accommodation from our Lord. At the end of the account, Jesus reveals in true intent all along. His, his debate with her really has, has been this, this, this probing to draw out her faith and to highlight the faith, the faith that even Gentiles is rewarded. Look in verse 28 with me. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, then, then Jesus answered her. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. He doesn't just say your daughter will be healed, by the way. I think he was alluding to a greater desire that she had as having him as her Lord and Master, the Son of David. And so he says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. What sweet words. What wonderful words of commendation. And the result was, it says, and her daughter was healed instantly, proving that her faith was acceptable. Faith didn't earn the healing. The faith came, came as a result. I mean, the faith came her healing came as a result of God saying, be it done for you as you desire, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire, and her daughter was healed. She didn't earn the healing. But her faith was great because she was believing here in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trying, in the midst of hurdles, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of Jesus testing her, in the midst of the disciples wanting to turn her away. She was persistent in her faith. She was believing in Jesus, asking for mercy, even though she knew she didn't deserve it and she demonstrated she didn't deserve it. She acknowledged and, and, and owned up to the fact that in herself she has no worth, but she is still throwing her feet, herself at the feet of Jesus and saying, but I want to eat your crumbs. She's persisting. She's believing. She's humbly acknowledging her need for Jesus. And then she's claiming her right to be fed by Jesus as his dog. And Jesus saw her faith and rewarded her faith. It was, you know, you have to say that her faith, it didn't make Jesus do this, but no, her faith was the conduit, the pipeline. You know, a couple weeks ago we had a, a gas pipeline that goes from the, somewhere in Texas all the way up to New York. It broke. It was the conduit. It wasn't the source of the gas or the, or the fuel. It was, it was the conduit that carried it. The faith here is not the source of Jesus' commendation. It's not the source of Jesus saying, be done for you to desire. But it is the conduit. It's, it's the way, the means that she receives God's grace. The means that we receive God's grace, the means we position ourselves to receive from God is to humbly place ourselves at his feet, persistently coming to him, acknowledging him, centering on him as our Savior. And Mark tells us in his account that she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demons gone. What joy she must have experienced. What a groundbreaking miracle because you see in this miracle Jesus is demonstrating that it has nothing to do with outward cleanliness. That's why he did this miracle going right from that teaching about it's not outward cleanliness that makes you acceptable to God to going and proving it. This woman who's outwardly unclean, a Gentile dog, a Canaanite woman, she's made clean. She receives God's grace. 
And she doesn't receive that from being outwardly clean. She receives that through faith. And that gives me hope because he has mercy to all who come to him humbly in faith. He has mercy on all. He brings healing to people who come to him as their Messiah and come to him humbly saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, heal me. He doesn't have to be present to heal. Isn't that cool? Even though she's a far off Gentile, she is brought near and blessed by God and she receives one of only two really accommodations the two greatest accommodations here of saying, how great is your faith? And it was both the Gentiles. She experienced what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.17. This is our hope as Gentiles. He says in Ephesians 2.17, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, like this woman was far off. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, Jew and Gentile alike, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, you are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what's happening here in this miracle. In the end, this woman was no longer a stranger to Christ. She got what she desired most. And she receives blessings and great commendation from Christ. She had this faith that didn't put hope in herself, but put her hope in Jesus and persisted and persisted humbly. Not a faith that earns, but a faith that looks to the master to provide. A faith that seeks not to create her own food, but a faith that seeks whatever the master would give to us. But here's the beauty, though, what we know on this side of the miracle. Those who come in faith are not treated like dogs, but we're invited to eat at his table. Look, I want you to look with me at Matthew 8, 10 through 13. What was Jesus' response to the centurion, to the centurion's great faith that he committed in the same way? Matthew 8, 10, it says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who follow him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons, people of Israel, of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But look at the promise in verse 11 that she received and that we can receive as we come to him by faith. He says, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west. What does that mean? People outside of the land of Israel, from the east and the west, people who are not sons, they will come. And what do we get as the Gentile dogs who come in seeking? What does it say? Many will come and, what a wonderful picture here, not be under the table, not eating scraps like a dog. But those who come by faith, like dogs, who come by faith, he says, will recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven as fellow heirs. By faith, we're no longer dogs underneath of the table. 
We're invited to the banquet table of God the Father to recline with him, to receive all the blessings, all the promises of God that have been given to the people of Israel are ours by faith, and let us receive them by faith. Amen? Well, let's pray. As I pray, go ahead and the band go ahead and come up and let's prepare our hearts to place our faith in Christ. Father, we come to you and thank you that you reveal that it's not our cleanness that earns favor before you. That no effort, no amount of earning deserves any favor. No religious rituals, Lord. Not us keeping ourselves clean. We can't do that, Lord. But thank you, God, for showing us that it, you accept us by faith in you. God, we don't have faith in ourselves. We have faith in Jesus Christ who, who came to, to die for us, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we might go free. to to give us your righteousness, Christ. You came to give us your righteousness so that you would earn the righteousness that that we need and then you would give your righteousness to us. By faith, God, we come to you. God, I pray for all who are struggling with doubt and fear, all who feel ashamed and burdened and dirty, all who feel like dogs. Lord, I pray that you would Give us a humble faith in you, seeing that you make clean all who come to you humbly. God, for those who who are in you, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to persist in faith, even when we don't hear, knowing that you're not being mean, but you desire as the great physician to heal, to bring final, ultimate healing at least. So God, may we come with you as the center of our faith, not being daunted by what others say not being put off by insults people making fun of us Lord not being put off by your uncleanness Lord but coming to you in the midst of our uncleanness and, and receiving the great desire of our heart to be your sons and daughters to eat at your table so Jesus by faith would you feed us son of David have mercy on us we pray in Jesus name Please stand.